We're living in the age of podcasting, which also means the age of podcast networks with large back catalogs, long-running series, limited programming, and even cross-network collaborations. How are publishers supposed to keep this all organized? With Spreaker, of course. Spreaker's customizable publisher plan lets you organize your content exactly how you want it and gives you enough pod tech tools to monetize the largest back catalogs. If you're into premium offerings for subscribers, check out Spreaker's customized RSS feeds to upload and schedule exclusive content with ease. Or use our campaign manager to manage different campaigns from one central platform. Once your podcast business gets big enough, you can even add multiple networks to one account and collaborators assigned to each one. That helps keep the true crime series away from the comedy podcasts and make sure you get the advertisements that will resonate the most with your listeners. So let's move from the age of podcasting to the age of the podcast network with Spreaker. Head to Spreaker.com to learn more. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com. Hello and welcome. It's Eric Erickson here. The phone number. You want to be a part of the program? 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. I made the mistake. My apologies. My my apologies. I made the mistake of, of steering at the internet uh, before getting on and and there's somebody wrong on the internet right now but i i will resist the urge to correct them at this moment right now I, I, we got to talk about believe it or not we got to talk about football and i i gotta I, I gotta be real honest with you i love college football i i love to watch college football i like to go to college football games i like to tailgate at college football games you know so I, i've got my rec tech uh grill uh, it's it's a smoker. I've got a, a big professional grill that I do all my grilling on, and, and I, I smoke on the Rectech. They just changed their name, R-E-C-T-E-C, to R-E-C-T-E-Q because they want to get into other lifestyle products, coolers and stuff, and, and they ran into trademark issues, but it's great. And, and I watch, and, and I've just, you know, I had on Matt Moore, the cookbook author a while back, and the elaborate setups that people do tailgating around the country. If I wrote a book again, and, and I, I feel like I got another book in me, however painful they are, it would have to be on the great tailgating traditions of the SEC. I mean, good gracious, you go to whether it's it's the University of Alabama or the University of Mississippi. No one wants to go there, though. But uh, you, you go to Oxford, uh, you go to, to Baton Rouge, you, you go to Athens. And my goodness, I mean, even Vanderbilt is capable of of, of awesome tailgates. The, the, the good eats, uh, the bar service, everything. Uh, and it is it is a community. There's a community aspect to it. And now if, if you didn't hear the news yesterday, although this is really probably the biggest virus-related news out there, is the Big Ten and the Pac-12 are thinking they may scuttle their football seasons. Now, uh, this was leaked yesterday by Dan Patrick, and it is um, Dan Patrick on his morning radio show said that the Big Ten and and the Pac-12 were working together. They were going to cancel their football seasons. The vote was 12 to two. Nebraska and I think Michigan were the two that wanted to continue playing. Uh, No one else wanted to continue playing. Uh, Jim Harbaugh of Michigan is really upset about it. And they're pushing very hard to change this. Um, uh, Pete Ricketts, the governor of Nebraska is openly calling for them to reject the idea. Uh, ben Sass, the senator from Nebraska, is also calling on them to walk this back to not do this. The SEC met yesterday in, a, in an unplanned meeting. The SEC commissioner and, and uh, presidents of SEC schools met yesterday, and they've decided to take a go slow, wait and see how it plays out approach. 
Uh, Harbaugh, for his to his credit, in uh, Michigan has pointed out that the players on the football teams are actually more uh, safer than the other kids on campus, given the protocols they put in place at the University of Michigan and other schools. Now, I realize here in the South, where most of you who listen to this program are paying attention, uh, we we pay attention to the SEC, maybe for basketball, the ACC. Unless you're a Tech fan and, and you have visions of Georgia Tech beating Georgia. Otherwise, nobody cares about anything other than the SEC. And let's be honest, if you live in, in the, I don't know, the upper peninsula of Michigan or some uh, hippie sound Washington state, you too only care about SEC. Uh, you may be brainwashed into thinking you actually care about, I don't know, the University of Minnesota football team, but you really don't. I mean, football in, in North America Football is the NFL and the SEC. That That's really it. There are other conferences in the nation. And, you know, okay, due to the cheerleaders, you do have to take the University of Texas seriously as a football team. You, you do have to take University of Texas seriously. I, I, I do like to go to University of Texas football. They're fun. They, they actually are. But, I mean, beyond that, does anyone really care about, like, Boise State? I No, no, you, you, you really don't. Now, I, I, I feel compelled to give you because you probably don't know because, again, people care about the NFL and the SEC. Let, let me give you the list of teams that are in these other conferences. Uh, so in the Big Ten, you've got Indiana, University of Maryland, University of Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, Penn State, Rutgers, University of Illinois, University of Iowa, University of Minnesota, University of Nebraska, Northwestern, Purdue, and University of Wisconsin. That is the Big Ten. Now, uh, let me give you the Pac-12. The Pac-12, nobody cares about the Pac-12, if we're really honest. Uh, University of Arizona, Arizona State, uh, University of California, Berkeley, UCLA, University of Colorado, Boulder, University of Oregon, Oregon State, University of Southern California, Stanford, uh, University of Utah, University of Washington, Washington State University. How many people even knew the University of Utah was in the, in the Pac-12? I, I have no idea. I, I make light of it. I mean, obviously, the University of Southern California is, is a good team. Uh, UCLA is a good team. Uh, and, of course, the Ducks, uh, the University of Oregon, are, are a fairly notable football team. But by and large, people care about the SEC. There are a few other conferences people care about. I've never quite understood why we allowed in Missouri and, and the Aggies into the SEC, but I'm okay with it. We should have brought in the Longhorns as well, and maybe now we can. Uh, bring in the Longhorns and, and Oklahoma and 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 just have a, a huge SEC uh, rivalry, uh, multiple rivalries. But nonetheless, here's the problem, and here's what we need to consider with football. If football seasons are canceled, it's actually bigger than football seasons. Uh, now, you should know that the president of the University of Tennessee has come out and said they're playing football. Uh, the coaches at Michigan and, and Nebraska have come out and say they're, they're playing football. Uh, the University of Nebraska has come out and said they're playing football. Wake Forest president has said they're playing football. Uh, Dabo Sweeney is coming out today, apparently an unscheduled press conference and saying Clemson is playing football and the quarterback from Clemson also is coming out with a press conference, uh, with, uh, Dabo saying that, that they're playing football, uh, whether it is intra-league or inter-league, there, there are inter-conference, intra-conference, they want to play football. 
the nation wants them to play football. People need a distraction. I was actually, uh, so our flagship station is, is WGAU in Athens, and I was on a call with the sales team there. And, and, and by the way, uh, for the, those of you local stations around, uh, I'm happy to do local ads uh, in, in, in markets uh, for you guys. And I, I was meeting with the Athens station about that a little while ago. Um, and a, <laughs> Charlie may get heartburn for that, but nonetheless. Um, so it, it, I, we were talking about this and, and just the nation is tired of the virus story. You will note if you're listening to this program on a regular basis here lately, I've tried to start the show with something other than the virus, except when there's really big news on it, because people are tired of this. People are tired of the virus. They're tired of the bad news. They're, frankly, they're even tired of politics. They're, they're tired of the president, Joe Biden. They're, they're tired of all these stories. Uh, that's not why I'm actually starting the show with football today. I'm starting it because it actually is very big news today. People are very concerned about it. But there's there are bigger ramifications to football. I guess I should clear up my thought. I was on this call about advertising, and one of the people asked me, how is the audience responding to the show, and, and what are they thinking about the news stories, and where's the balance? And, and I said, I can tell because I interact with so many of you. You guys are tired of the virus. You're tired of hearing about the virus. You're tired of the show starting about the virus. I am too. And I generally, because I live in the real world and interact with so many people who listen to the show on a daily basis when I go to the grocery store somewhere here in Macon, I know people are tired of it. If I'm tired of a story, my general sense is everyone else is tired of it. And I am tired of the election and I am tired of, of the virus. I'm, I'm just tired. I, I hate talking about it. That's why people want football. People want football to come back. They want a distraction. Uh, they don't want the, the NBA, NFL, political take a knee, let, let's discuss um, racial justice stuff. They just want to watch the game. They don't want the in-your-face preaching on politics. They don't want the culture war. They just want to watch football. And we need football and, and kudos to the SEC and apparently the ACC as well for standing up and saying they're going to play. They'll take it slow. If, if developments change, they'll change with it, but they're not going to preclude an entire season. And the ramifications of this, I don't know that people understand really the ramifications if they don't pay attention to football. There's something called Title Seven, And in Title Seven, uh, you've got to, you can't have all men's sports. You have to have women's sports and men's sports generally in equal proportion. And you may not have the same sport, but you can't discriminate against girl sports. And what typically happens is that your primary revenue generators of football and basketball generate so much revenue, they then subsidize these other sports, whether it is the, the men's rowing team or the women's, uh, the, the women's sporting team, the women's uh, sport shooting, women's golf, men's golf, uh, men's and women's soccer, softball. Uh, the, the bigger sports and the typically the big three are number one football, number two basketball, number three baseball on the men's side. They then subsidize not just the rest of athletics, but they also, to a significant degree, subsidize universities. If you get rid of college football, it's actually bigger than men's college football. Getting rid of men's college football will have a serious impact on eradicating other sports that do not turn a profit and do not generate revenue for schools and therefore depend on the revenue generated by the football team to cover their costs. For example, let's take golf. Uh, golf is increasingly an area where women can get scholarships at schools. Shooting, I keep telling, my daughter is actually a very good shot. I, I'm, I'm impressed with my daughter. 
when when she shoots, she is actually very good. Um, she has a my, my I, I have very I, I'm I'm not ashamed to brag on my kids. They are wonderfully talented uh, in art. Uh, my son wants to be an architect. When he grows up, he's he gets into Minecraft. He builds these elaborate buildings. I'm impressed, and he does them so quick. My daughter is a brilliant artist. Both of my kids are actually really good shots, uh, and I don't know where they got it from, uh, but they are. The, the few times we take them to the gun range, we go to Eagle Gun Range here in Macon, and they love to go. We don't go enough. In fact, we haven't been in a while. Uh, it's hard to get into. There have been such a crowd. Uh, but you go out to Eagle and take them to the gun range, and they are fantastic shots. And they love to do it. And I wish my daughter would join a uh, shooting clay team or, or, or a um, a shooting team because if you're a girl and you're on a shooting team or you're on a golf team, mind you, even you're a boy on a golf team, you can get a scholarship to college as an athlete in those areas because they need those players. So they offer scholarships to them. And oftentimes those scholarships are funded by the revenue generated from football and baseball. I, yeah, thank you, Jack. Uh, I said title seven, it's title nine. Um, thank you. I title seven, title, title seven is employment. T- title nine is, I said this yesterday too. So thank you to listener Jack for correcting me on the fly here. Yes. Title nine. And I had it in the back of my head that it was title nine. And I kept thinking, no, it's, it's gotta be title seven. Cause I always say title nine It's title nine. But your college football and basketball and baseball, they subsidize these other sports. So if you get rid of college football in particular, you're penalizing your your female sports. So if you're a feminist, for example, if you're a feminist, you want men's college football to play because that's how you get your Title IX equality in, in, in college sports is football. You don't like to talk about it. Nobody likes to talk about it, but that's the reality. You you turn off college football, you turn off the spigot of revenue generated, and this year is actually a huge potential for non-ticket Non-ticketed viewer revenue, meaning uh, television rights, uh, reservations for spaces because you got to socially distance for tailgating, things like that. Colleges could pack in the revenue for this stuff. Socially distance people through college campuses to ensure a- appropriate space for tailgating, things like that. They could do all of that. And they could generate a huge amount of revenue for other sports within colleges that keep them Title IX compliant. And if they don't have the college football, they're going to have to wind down these other teams because these other teams aren't going to have the revenue to fund the scholarships for the kids or the revenue needed. So, I mean, take, for example, golf. Some schools have golf courses. And they allow uh, non-students to play on their golf courses with precedent for students. And they also use money from the high-ticket games to then subsidize the golf courses and keep the golf courses in pristine shape. And if they go play elsewhere, they gotta they gotta cover the costs of playing elsewhere. They gotta cover the balls and stuff. Um, it, it, there's a there's a great golf course here in town. I, I keep meaning to join and I have it. The Brickyard. It, it's it's not even it's maybe a mile from my house. My son wants to go play golf there. Uh, and I believe Mercer here. I, I know a lot of the students there go out to that golf course. Well, that costs money, uh, and and the schools have to come up with the money, and they come up with the money through the athletic budget, and the biggest driver of the athletic budget tends to be football, or at Mercer's case, basketball. Mercer's got a fantastic basketball team, uh, and they've got a football team now, too, with great facilities. But uh, you get my point here. You, you get rid of these big college sports, you're going to actually kill off the smaller college sports, and it's going to be easier to bounce back on the big sports than the small sports. These schools need college football. In the same way we need college football, we need it as a distraction from what's going on in life. 
colleges need it as a revenue enhancer. Uh, the big advocates out there for shutting down sports right now do not live in the real world. And increasingly, this is a frustration that I share with a lot of people who are more skeptical of the virus than me. So much of the advice that we are getting at this point that the media is giving credence to is advice that comes from people not grounded in the real world. They're so mired in academia that they genuinely can't fathom how the real world works. And they're trying to enforce and, and impose decisions on the real world in ways that the real world can't embrace because it breaks down, for example, entire athletic programs in colleges if they were to go along with it. Uh, we need to be in the reality-based community when we're dealing with the virus. And the reality is we need football. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I need to make a, a point here that I think is getting missed, and, and I should have done it in the first segment, but I needed to, to lay all of that out here. A lot of people are talking about football being canceled, myself included. Did an entire monologue on on football, whether or not it's going to be canceled or not. Uh, my buddy Chip Roy, he's a member of Congress, longtime friend of mine. He was a, a college athlete. He was on the golf team, I think, at the University of Virginia. Virginia Tech, one of them. Um, I think University of Virginia, in, in any event. Uh, he was a college athlete. He's a huge college football fan. And he has pointed out uh, insightfully and accurately that while college football is extremely important, what is more important are the number of small businesses out there that are being devastated still by the economic fallout of this virus. And as much as we need and, and people want college football, we need to be mindful still of the small businesses out there struggling, uh, the, the mom and pop shops, the barber shops, the restaurants, the other small businesses that are struggling to either stay open or get back on their feet while Congress refuses to do its job. The president is having to pass uh, executive orders that can easily be repealed by the next president, but more so are arguably in some cases unconstitutional that we need to get into. Uh, we can't forget about these businesses. Uh, the number of closures is alarming. I was talking to someone locally the other day uh, who was telling me that this is the worst he is there. He's been in, he's been doing this for a while um, as a, as a developer, as a businessman, helping other businesses stay afloat and says it, it is the worst he has seen the environment for business, uh, that there is just no good news. We need to be mindful of these small businesses. And I've got to tell you, I one of my deep frustrations is the amount of time my, my wife and I love to cook and the amount of time actually that we've spent eating out. And I don't feel guilty about that right now. The, the more we support other support local businesses and local restaurants and and spend our money with them, I think the better off we are because the better off they will be uh, helping as many local businesses as you can. Don't feel guilty if you're eating out a lot right now because these businesses need your business. And the more we can use local businesses, local shops, uh, and, and keep them afloat, not just restaurants, but other small businesses, I think the better off we will be as a society because we'll be helping keep these businesses afloat that are really struggling right now. So please keep that in mind while we're all focused on football. Uh, the bigger picture is these other small businesses uh, that are struggling and need to be helped. 
if your business needs to be helped, uh, this is a perfect segue for me to be able to tell you about First Liberty Building and Loan in Noonan. First Liberty Building and Loan is the the Frost family. They live in Noonan. It doesn't matter, and this is really important. I don't care where you're listening to me. You could be in Alaska or Hawaii or California or Nevada or Idaho or Georgia, and First Liberty Building and Loan can help you get access to capital, access to credit, uh, lines of credit and loans. Uh, that's what they do. They don't help individuals. They help businesses. Uh, they deal in $10 million loans regularly. They can help you with PPP. They can help you with with other businesses, uh, business lending. If you need help, please reach out to them. The Frost family are good Christians. They've been involved in politics. Uh, they help fund the conservative movement. Uh, they're just they're solid people. And their business is First Liberty Building and Loan, and their website is firstlibertyga.com. I'm not kidding you when I tell you that they want to help you. I know them. They're good people. They have helped me in the past. They want to help you. If your business needs to grow, if your business needs access to capital to survive right now, if you need to navigate the world of PPP, go to firstlibertyga.com. That is firstlibertyga.com. They want to grow with you. They want you to grow. They want to help you reach out to them. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You know, there's a shooting near the White House yesterday. Uh, Right outside the White House, the person was shot, believed by a Secret Service agent, uh, taken to the hospital, expected to survive, but the president was pulled out of his briefing uh, right after he started his briefing, he was pulled out and uh, then came back in two minutes later and explained what had happened. And, of course, the media, uh, you know, this is one of the disturbing uh, gotcha trends of the media right now. It's, it's, oh, look, the president looked weak. He he, he got pulled out. No, actually, uh, you, you I, I realize people want to politicize everything, but some things be mature and don't waste your time politicizing. That is one of them. Uh, he, he, the secret service got him out of there and then let him come back in. Uh, and, but it was an, it was an interesting moment that got everybody a buzz. Now, I, 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 I want to move from that to something we, we've got to divide even here in Georgia on this issue, what to do with state bailouts. I want to play you two clips real quick. Uh, this is the Lieutenant Governor, uh, Lieutenant Governor Stratton of Illinois. Look, at every single level of government, we see uh, just a, an incredible financial crisis due to the COVID-19 pandemic, something that none of us expected that we would have to deal with. Uh, but here we are, we see record numbers of people have filed for unemployment. We see uh, every level of government really struggling from what they thought their budgets would be and not being able to maintain that. And we need assistance from the federal government. We need assistance to help our business owners. We need assistance to help with uh, the residents of our state. And that's something that we will continue to advocate for. So we know that these executive orders did not do anything to really help the people uh, that need the most help. That's what we have to be focused on. Today, we are offering emergency rental uh, assistance through our Illinois Housing Development Authority here in Illinois because people need help being able to pay their rent for the remainder of this year. We are going to kick off a pro- similar program for mortgage assistance. People are hungry. There are so many issues that have come up. We need leadership from the federal government to step up and make sure that states and local units of government well, have the kind of support that they need. Okay. That was the Lieutenant Governor of Illinois. 
that that essentially we've got to have a state bailout. We got to have money. We 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 need the money. This this is Illinois, a bankrupt state, bankrupt because of its own policies. They need a bailout. Well, here's uh, Kaylee McEnany, uh, the White House press secretary. Is the president willing to uh, provide some aid for states and local governments, given that given that the administration is asking states to pay? for a quarter of the National Guard assistance and now a quarter of the unemployment benefits. Yeah, the president's always been clear here that, you know, he wants to support state and local governments, but only for COVID-related matters, and he doesn't want to bail out blue states that had structural problems long before this. So that's where his priorities lie. Not going to bail out the states. He doesn't want to bail out the states. So I, I need to explain this issue to you of what's coming. So one of the big issues, it is the one tax cut. You know, I, I ironically, and there is a level of irony and humor here. The Democrats often accuse the Republicans of wanting to give tax cuts to the rich. And it is now the Democrats who want to give a tax cut to the rich. It's called SALT. You will hear this referred to by policy wonks as SALT. It's an acronym. It stands for state and local taxes. Under the federal tax guidance and, and, and federal tax laws of the past, you could deduct from your federal income taxes the amount of money you paid in state and local taxes. Let, let me explain to you what happens when I go to Los Angeles sometimes. Occasionally, I go do TV in Los Angeles, and I get paid uh, in California and by a company in California. And when I get my paycheck in Georgia, uh, I've got local taxes in California taken out of it. State taxes in California are taken out of it, and Georgia taxes are taken out of it, and federal taxes are taken out of it. If you go to New York City, like, for example, uh, when I was filling in for Rush, uh, there were only, or when I was working at Fox even, there they had to keep track of how many times I actually went to New York to do work. Because if you go to New York uh, and, and earn income in excess, I think it's $10,000 within New York City, not only are you subject to New York City income taxes, you're also subject to New York State income taxes, and you're subject, of course, to the federal income taxes. And so you had to be mindful of how much work you actually did in studio in New York. And and you had to be careful that, that you didn't wind up owing uh, taxes in New York and New York City uh, just because you actually went up there and did some work. So, for example, I, being in Georgia, I can talk about filling in for Rush, um, filling in for Rush, you get paid to fill in for Rush Limbaugh. I actually assume people did it for free. I was willing to do it for free. Uh, the very first time I did it, I actually did it in Rush's office in New York City at Rockefeller Center. And uh, we had to keep track of how many times I did it because if I went over the limit in the number of times I filled in going to New York City to, to be up there with, with the team there, then suddenly I was going to have to pay state and city taxes in New York. Wound up doing it out of Atlanta um, at, at uh, my radio show, my radio station in Atlanta, just to avoid the tax impact, uh, among other things. And e e this is a problem in the nation. This is a problem with a lot of these Democrat states, whether it's New York or California or Illinois. They tax the mess out of people. They tax people who come in, uh, transient workers. I mean, look at look at football and, and basketball players. They try their hardest to avoid going to some of these states to play games because of the amount of taxes they're going to have to pay to these states. Just by going in and providing entertainment in those states, the amount of tax they're going to have to pay to those states is absurd. And the federal government used to allow you to deduct this, and the Republicans said, you know what, we're not going to do this anymore.
And the reason we're not going to do this anymore is because more often than not, the rich people who accuse us of wanting to give tax breaks to the rich are the ones who bellyache about this. They're the ones who benefit from this deduction. We can get rid of this deduction. It's not going to be a huge tax increase on the poor and the middle class. It's going to be a tax increase on the rich. And now you've got the Democrats out there screaming, oh, put it back, put it back, put it back, put it back. And the reason they want it put back is because as long as you have the state and local tax deductions in the federal government's budget uh, budget plan and taxation scheme, no one had to be mindful of the out-of-control taxation in states like Illinois, California, and New York. And now that people are realizing just how much they're paying because they, they can't deduct it anymore from the federal income tax, there's no offset. And so now that people realize how much money they're paying – a lot of people are moving out of those states. Surprise! You you finally feel the tax burden of your state, and that's what SALT did, the state and local taxes uh, deduction. That's what it did, is it inoculated people from feeling the local tax burden. Now they feel the local tax burden, and they don't like it. And so Democratic governors are seeing particularly rich people pack up and leave, pack up and move getting out of the state. Florida has benefited tremendously from this. A whole lot of people in, in New York have vacation homes in Florida and they have packed up and moved into their vacation homes as their new permanent residence. And people aren't moving back to New York. They've, they've, they, they, they don't want to be a part of the taxation scheme of New York City or Illinois. That's why you see Illinois and New York and California, mostly uh, those are the three big states bellyaching about this tax deduction. That is why Nancy Pelosi held hostage the, ta the, the stimulus plan. Part of the Democrats' demand in the stimulus plan was a restoration of the SALT deduction. They wanted a tax deduction for rich people. The Democrats did. After years of accusing the Republicans of wanting a tax break for rich people, the Democrats wanted to allow rich people in New York, California, and Illinois to deduct their state income taxes from their federal taxes because the rich in those states are the ones who shoulder the burden of taxation in those states. The poor and the middle class typically, because of the progressive income tax system in these states, tend to get passed over in favor of the millionaires and billionaires who live in those states, and they get eaten alive. And most of the millionaires and billionaires who live in those states who get eaten alive by state taxes don't care about it because they get to deduct all of that stuff on their federal income tax bill, so it lowers their federal burden and it all comes out the wash. Now it doesn't, and they're living and they're moving. And so you've got the Democrats willing to hijack and hold hostage a stimulus plan for Americans and American small businesses in a time of global pandemic and economic crisis, all so that they can give a tax deduction to rich people. The irony of this knows no bounds. That's why there's no stimulus plan in Washington right now, because of the Democratic insistence on restoring the SALT deduction. Now, we should look at it from another angle. These states, New York, Illinois, California, they've been able to be fiscally reckless for a number of years, in large part because of this tax offset through the SALT deduction. You had all the rich people who write the checks and influence politics. They couldn't care less because they get a tax deduction anyway. Now they don't. And now they're starting to gripe and complain and bellyache about the cost of living in these states. 
And these states have made very strategically bad decisions. They've been in bed with labor unions, and they've been pouring money into labor unions, uh, propping up labor unions, and, and, and driving up costs of state labor for, for state employees. They've refused to reform. They've refused to make cuts. And now they're having to, and they don't like it. They have pensions, and they've handled their pensions badly. They haven't moved their their state employees over to 401ks. They want to do pensions. The pension plans are going bankrupt. Uh, Populations are winding down, uh, and people are fleeing the states, and they're going broke, and they want a federal bailout. And Donald Trump's saying, nope, no federal bailout. We are not doing a federal bailout, and they're livid. They're livid that they now have to deal with the consequence of their bad decisions. You know, not every state has done this. Uh, I, I live in Georgia. And Georgia actually has done a very good job managing state costs. In fact, Georgia has been very fiscally responsible, building rainy day funds, saving money, looking at ways to cut, uh, finding innovations. They've done a very good job. They don't have the economic disastrous uh, results of other states. Well, there is a political angle for those of us here in Georgia. The Speaker of the House of Representatives in Georgia, David Ralston, has asked Congress for a state bailout. He's joining a number of uh, House speakers around the country and political leaders of Democrat and Republican states begging for bailouts. They want a federal bailout. Well, Kelly Loeffler and the Speaker do not get along. The Speaker of the House is a Doug Collins friend and tried, if you will recall, to change the election rules in the middle of the game uh, to try to get a primary election for the, the special election to help Doug Collins, the calculation being that if there, if they could rush a primary, Collins would beat Leffler. Well, it didn't work out. The governor threatened to veto it, scuttled the plan. The governor did not want to change the rules in the middle. Of, you know, so Georgia has a rule that when when a when a Senate seat comes open in the middle of a term, the governor gets to appoint someone, and then that person must stand at the next general election. That's the way it's always worked in Georgia. There's no runoff. There's no primary. Nothing like that. You're all put on the ballot. It's called a jungle ballot. All the candidates line up together. That's the way it's always worked in Georgia. So the governor appoints Kelly Leffler to the seat after there's a lobbying effort for Doug Collins, who I like, by the way. This is not a criticism of Doug. Uh, Doug doesn't get it. Kelly Leffler does. So the speaker, who is a friend of Doug's, unbeknownst to anybody, including Doug, decides, you know what? I'm going to rewrite the law and force a primary in this. And the the governor said, no, I've already done it. We're not going to change the rules in the middle of the game. That, That would be bad. You can't change the rules in the middle of the game. And made the speaker mad. The speaker made the governor mad. Well, now Kelly Leffler is in the Senate. And uh, Kelly Leffler, by the way, there's new polling out from Survey USA, which actually has a very good track record in Georgia, and she's now 10 points ahead of Doug Collins. Surprise. Uh, I- I'm surprised by that as well. Collins and, and Warnock are tied, and, and Leffler's now. This is the second poll in a row that has Leffler uh, about 10 points ahead, which is interesting. Uh, her WNBA culture war stuff appears to be working. Unfortunately, I'm afraid her lawyer ad against Collins. I, I don't like the lawyer ad against Collins. I think it's bad form. Uh, he was a he was an indigent lawyer, indigent defense lawyer. He helped poor people who needed a lawyer. He shouldn't be attacked for helping people with the crime. But in any event, uh, she's ahead in the polls right now, apparently. But so she is saying no bailout for the states. I, that that she is is going to block it. She says it's a blue state bailout. Uh, she she made a passive aggressive comment about the speaker that it's unfortunate that others 
uh, from better managed states have gotten involved to be a voice for the fiscally reckless states. I, I assume that is a shot at Speaker Ralston for wanting a state bailout. Uh, but she said, nope, uh, this this is a blue state bailout. Uh, they're the ones who have been fiscally reckless. And the, the taxpayers of Georgia should not have to bail out the taxpayers of Illinois and New York and California who have long refused to hold their fiscally reckless states accountable for fiscal recklessness. She doesn't want Georgia taxpayers on the hook for Illinois debt. Good for her. Uh, Doug Collins, by the way, affirms this. Doug Collins is saying, yeah, no, no, no state bailouts. Uh, we're, we're not bailing out blue states. But uh, there's some, there are a whole lot of people, myself included, who her forcefulness in this and the way she worded her statement sounds very much like she's taking a shot at David Ralston, who you need to recognize. The Speaker of the Georgia House is now on record asking the federal government to bail out blue states. The Speaker of the Georgia House, a fiscally responsible state, wants your Georgia taxpayer dollars to be used to bail out New York and Illinois. He has asked Congress for that. And it is Georgia's Senator, Kelly Leffler. David Perdue, I'm not, he hadn't released a statement on it yet, but Leffler was was first out of the gate saying, we, we're not bailing out blue states. Uh, those voters are going to have to deal with their politicians being fiscally reckless, and Georgia's voters and taxpayers shouldn't have to bail them out. Good for her for taking that position. Bad on the speaker for wanting a statewide bailout or a state bailout for blue states. It's not going to happen. But that is why those of you who want to know why you can't get another stimulus check, those of you want to know why they can't extend PPE, those of you want to know why they can't come up with a plan, that's why. The Democrats in Congress are refusing another stimulus plan unless they can get a tax deduction to benefit rich Democrats in blue states who want to be able to deduct the burden of their state and local taxes. It's all politics. Yes, you can call in 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I guess it's about time we, we do some other other intro, outro voiceovers. We got to get with JJ. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm talking, talking out loud show stuff. Um, all right. We have other stuff we, we have to uh, deal with, one of which is important. There is a runoff today in Georgia statewide. Now, if you're in Northeast Georgia, you have the Matt Gertler, uh, Andrew Clyde race. I misspoke yesterday and said the House conservatives are backing Matt Gertler. That's not true. Uh, Jody Heiss actually listens. He texted me and said, no, in fact, he's backing uh, Andrew Clyde. Uh, Rand Paul was on the show. He and Mike Lee, I think Ted Cruz as well, myself, have been backing Matt Gertler. I, I, I have had people who've wanted to come on and, and drop oppo and stuff on Andrew Clyde. I don't know the guy. I'm impressed with the guy. I don't dislike the guy. I just don't know anything about the guy other than he's got a fantastic gun store and does have a compelling story on on um, fighting the federal government. I'm supporting Matt Gertler just because he's got a track record in the state legislature of actually standing up to his own side and voting no uh, against his own side, which I think Republicans need more of. We need people who are willing to go to Washington and tell their own side, you know what, this, this is fiscally reckless. I'm not going to go along with it. And we don't have a lot of that. Uh, Gertler has a record in the state of doing that. So I'm uh, I because lo the more local you are in politics, the nastier it is. It'll be easier for him to, to be an, uh, a no man to his own party in Washington than it is in Georgia. Yet he's done it in Georgia. That's why I'm supporting him in Habersham County. Uh, there's a state Senate runoff. Stacy Hall uh, is is who I'm supporting up there. I know Stacy. Uh, I don't know the other guy, uh, and I've had a couple of people email me and say that he's a nice guy. I, I'm going to take their word for it, but I, I like Stacy. 
I, I think he'll be fantastic. I know he'll be a conservative in the state Senate. There's a, a in Northwest Georgia, I believe there's a sheriff runoff in Floyd County. I don't know all of the runoffs out there. I, I, I One day I want to have a budget for the show where I can hire someone to just be full-time election researcher uh, for the show and, and keep me up to date on this stuff. But in Northwest Georgia, there is a congressional runoff, John Cowan, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Look, I like Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I, I need everybody to hear that. I like Marjorie Taylor Greene. If I was up there, though, I'd vote for John Cowan, and here's why. Uh, as much as I think Marjorie would be a, a street fighter for the GOP in Washington and for conservatives, there is enough stuff that she has said in the past that, frankly, it's going to be a distraction for Republicans statewide. Uh, you know how the media works, and frankly, you know that voters buy this stuff. When you start trotting out all the stuff Marjorie Taylor Greene has said and they start shoving microphones in other Republicans' faces, they're going to demand that they denounce it. And it's a distraction the GOP doesn't need when they need to be spending their money to save other seats. And it's going to cost them money. They're not going to lose the seat, but they'll have to spend some money on it. And with John Cowan, all that goes away. And frankly, it is a practical vote on my part. I have stayed out of that race. I haven't wanted to, to attack anyone. It is notable that every single other candidate who ran in that race, and there were like a billion uh, candidates in that race, they all went with John Cowan. And and that should tell you something. Uh, there's just, there's Marjorie Taylor Greene brings baggage to that race that the GOP is going to be forced by the media to confront. And you can say it's not fair. You can say it's no big deal. And it's not with you, but it is with independent voters. And those independent voters transcend that district. Now, the other race that I really care about this one, y'all, uh, my buddy Jason Anavatarte is, is running. It's Bill Lahey's seat. Um, that's a, over Harrelson County, stretches into Paulding County. Uh, he, he Bill retired. He's the guy who beat Tom Murphy, the late Georgia speaker. And he eventually made his way to the state Senate, and he's retiring. He is a solid conservative guy. And Jason Anavatarte is running against him, and, and he's running against a guy named Boyd Austin. And Boyd Austin's uh, supporters have been making racist attacks against Jason, whose family is of Puerto Rican descent. And now they're making anti-Christian attacks, claiming that Jason uh, is backed by atheists when he's actually the conservative Christian of the race. It it is profound. Uh, If a guy like Boyd Austin is willing to lie about someone's faith, he probably shouldn't be trusted in the legislature. And I hope if you know anyone over in the Paulding County, Harrelson County area, you'll call him and tell him to vote for Jason Anavatarte today in that runoff. People need to stand up for him against the 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 slies and the racism that have been targeted towards him. Hello, it is Eric Erickson. How are you guys? The phone number, you want to call in and say hi. It's 877 877- 97-ERIC-877-973-7425. I, I waited until this hour uh, in large part uh, because I, our flagship station uh, in Athens, Georgia, WGAU, actually doesn't carry the first hour of the show. Uh, they, they've got a, a brilliant, brilliant uh, morning radio show host there who's been doing it for a number of years, Tim Bryant, and uh, his show lasts until 10. And when we decided to launch the show, we just decided, you know, we're going to do a three-hour show we can make it available to other stations and we just know that uh, we won't go live in Athens till 10 uh, and it, that was great other than the first week it was kind of weird the first week of the show it, we did an hour and we knew there was no one was listening the second week uh, WCHM up in Clarksville was the second station uh, to pick us up and then um, it, we got picked up at WRGA in Rome and and we've been spreading around the state and the reason I bring all of this up is is actually tomorrow. I'll I'll spend more time on it tomorrow. But today, 
I just I want to note uh, that that as of August twelfth, uh, two thousand twenty, we will have been on the radio for a year. Uh, I, I, this is this is the last day of our first year of doing this program. And it has been a deeply rewarding experience. Uh, you know, so here's the thing. Um, so I'll, I'm, I'm, you know what? It, it's my show. I'm going to do this. Uh, so Abby is the, the, our program director in, in Athens and she loved the idea. Charlie is my producer. Uh, he, he doesn't get enough credit for all the work he does for me. And we have been wanting forever to do a our own show, a, a syndicated show. I started in radio by accident. Uh, I think most of you know the story. I didn't intend to be on radio, and I wound up on radio, and I was hired uh, by Cox Media Group and, and WSB in Atlanta to replace Neil Bortz, who was retiring. Uh, Herman Cain was going to re- replace Neil Bortz, and then Herman ran for president. Well, they needed someone to replace Herman, who could then replace Neil, and they hired me. I was a CNN political analyst at the time, uh, moved over to Fox shortly thereafter, and I was going to replace Neil. But then uh, things went the way they went with Herman's race, and he decided to come back to radio. And, and it made sense to give the former presidential candidate uh, with the nationwide notoriety uh, the boards a slot. And I was doing well in the evening, uh, doing the evening news. Well, the the ratings are fantastic for the evening, which makes it very difficult to then move me to a morning show when when Herman uh, retired. And I just, but I wanted to do more. I've, I've always wanted to do a national radio show. But this year, Georgia is a swing state. And it made sense not to launch a nationwide show, but to launch a Georgia-specific show and to grow the show in Georgia. Uh, and focus on Georgia as a swing state with the elections. And uh, so we did and just thought, you know, we'll, we will work slow. We'll control the whole thing. Everything comes out of my pocket. Uh, and I actually, so I run the website, the resurgent, and now I do a daily subscriber based email called, um, it, it, well, it's, it's on Substack, and the Substack revenue, uh, that I control helps cover the cost. I've got some great advertisers now, dynamic money, first Liberty of Georgia, uh, and true precision. And they, they help me cover the cost and we're now statewide. Uh, this radio program that you're listening to, uh, covers almost all of the state, and at the end of this month, we'll be in, in more of the state. Uh, and by the end of this month, we'll cover, we'll be broadcast and accessible in two of the three um, priciest zip codes in the state. Uh, that is uh, the, the Reynolds area around Lake Oconee, uh, Sea Island, and uh, then in the evening, I'm on in Forsyth County, which is apparently the priciest part of the state now, according to some surveys. But uh, from the North Georgia Mountains to the Florida Line, from the Chattahoochee to the Atlantic Coast, uh, this this radio program covers the entire state nine to noon. Uh, there's one station that runs it in delay, uh, and there are two stations that said they would pick it up that didn't, and I got a I got to badger them to pick it up. But it, it has been a work in progress over time. It is uh, Charlie and me, and then Philip who uh, helps me on the website uh, does a lot of the social media stuff for this. If you see clips of the show picked up, it, it is it has been a labor of love though. We have slowly over time picked up stations. We're now on uh, more than a dozen stations in the state. We will be on uh, 15 stations, I think, uh, at the end of this month. And they're all in Georgia. 
We live stream it at theresurgent.com. So if you're out of state and want to listen, you can listen on one of the radio stations that has a streaming platform, or you can go to theresurgent.com. We put up clips on my Instagram feed, which I've never really used for politics, uh, but I, I Philip convinced me I should for this, and we continue to grow the show. And my goal, I'm very honest with all the program directors and, and all of you, is at some point when a position opens in the national big leagues of talk radio, I want this show to be able to be positioned to be able to just plop it down right there. One of the things that makes this show unique, and I realize I shouldn't get into the minutia here, and I'm going to, and I don't mean to bore you because there is news I need to talk about, including these runoffs in Georgia. But one of the things that that radio does, I don't know if you guys understand how most radio shows work, is let's take your standard national talk radio show. Your standard national talk radio show also has a certain number of minutes of advertising time set aside for it each day. And your local stations are required to play those ads. And they have someone in-house who every week fills out an affidavit and affirms that those ads were played. And if those ads were not played because of breaking news or weather or something else, they must cancel their own ads and play those national ads. Those national ads preempt their local advertising. Now, along came Dave Ramsey. And Dave Ramsey upended this, and I chose to go the Dave Ramsey route, where instead of me forcing local stations to override their ads and play my ads uh, and to sign an affidavit every week saying they've played my ads, I play my ads. You hear me talk about True Precision or First Liberty or Dynamic Money. You hear Chris Burns' ad. Uh, Chris Burns' ad is a great example. It'll be on late later this hour uh, from Dynamic Money, and we play it over the satellite for all of the stations so they don't have to fill out an affidavit saying they ran it. We run it ourselves. And so we can tell Chris Burns and Dynamic Money, we have run your ad. A local station may have a tornado, may may have a fire, may have breaking local news that they need to cover, and they shouldn't have to sacrifice their revenue, particularly when margins are thin these days in talk radio. They shouldn't have to sacrifice their local ads to run my ads uh, so they don't have to do affidavits and they don't have to do make goods. We give them the show for free. And we give them 17 minutes per hour to run any local content they want to run. And they can do with it what they want, and they never have to worry about our ads. We do it all. And that makes it so increasingly local stations, the economics of radio, are tough. You're competing with podcasts, and you're competing with satellite radio. And we wanted to make it as easy as possible for local stations to pick it up and run it. And and that's what we came up with. And it's actually been uh, successful to, to get roughly 15 stations in a year when you're really a Georgia station. You don't have a marketing team. You don't have an ad sales team. You don't have a syndicator behind you. We've done it all ourselves. It's been really rewarding to do. And tomorrow we will begin our second year of the show. Uh, and I, I feel that very much that I should give a shout out to Jim, who you never hear his voice down the line. Uh, but Jim runs the board for me. I connect into my studio in Atlanta from my house in Macon. And uh, if Jim were not there, this show, you could not hear the show. Uh, he is the, he is the, you know, I'm dispensable. I, I can get a guest host. Uh, Jim is the indispensable man. Uh, Charlie and I are both dispensable and we couldn't do it without Jim and, and with Abby and the team at WGAU, uh, for letting us get on the air. I'm sure I'll rehash some of this tomorrow. Uh, but I, I, I just, I gotta tell you that I am a, just, I'm, I love you guys uh, and you stations who picked it up. I, I love you. Now I got to work on advertisers this year. This, that's my resolution for the second year is to grow the advertising base for the show. Cause literally, I mean, I, I, 
I, I, I've done the show for a year and have made zero uh, because I got to cover the satellite. I got to cover salaries. I got to cover uh, the audio and technology. But I, I have a I did not know I had a passion for radio. I really didn't. Um, when I was in high school, my dad and I took father son road trip to check out colleges. And my dad loved Paul Harvey. I mean, my the only time I ever remember being threatened by my dad, who's an easygoing, uh, laid-back guy, the only time I ever remember being threatened with bodily harm by my father, other than that one time he broke down the bathroom door when I was five. <laughs> There's a story there. Um, <laughs> uh, was if you talked while Paul, Har- Paul Harvey was on the radio. Now, if you're my age or younger, you may not know who Paul Harvey was, but when I was a kid, from noon to 12:15 every day our house was silent so that my father could listen to Paul Harvey who delivered a newscast and was the most listened to person in radio probably the most listened to person in radio history if you've ever heard that the the god gave us a farmer ad uh, that dodge i believe used for dodge ram pickup trucks that's Paul Harvey he was one of the most respected people in all of radio he was re- leaned right of center, you could tell, but he delivered a straightforward, matter-of-fact newscast. And Paul Harvey, you got the sense when he told you to go buy a product, use that product, and it's kind of how I uh, go with advertising. But so my dad and I were on a college road trip, looking, checking out colleges. We were headed to Mercy University, then we were headed up to um, see Old Dominion and Georgetown and Washington, and then going to Duke on the way home. And we never made it up to uh, Georgetown, um, but uh, we made it to Duke. And I love Duke, but they were rude Yankees and decided I'd go to Mercer. Uh, so I wound up in Georgia going to Mercer. Uh, but we were looking for Paul Harvey, and we stumbled upon this, this show we had never heard before called Rush Limbaugh. And had no idea who Rush Limbaugh was. This was 1992, 93. He had just come into national syndication. And he was on some rural station near Tuskegee, Alabama. I remember is when we tuned in. I was driving. It's a big deal. I got to drive. And I thought, you know what? That's awesome. That That's just, we listen to him every day we were on the road, we would listen to Rush. And I never expected to do talk radio. One of the, the highlights of my life was becoming a friend of Rush's. Uh, and, and I got to meet him in person, um, one time at CPAC in Washington. And then we've, we connect and, and we trade emails and, and have gotten together every once in a while. He's, I filled in for him. And it was, I never expected to do it. I was going to be a lawyer and, and miserably so. I, I went to law school because uh, Saxby Chambliss, who was the senator from Georgia at the time, I worked on his campaign. He told me it was like the NBA of politics. I get a, get my law degree and then go to Washington and all the doors would open. So I went to law school because I wanted to go to Washington. And then I married a girl who didn't want to move to Washington. So I stayed to make him practice law, fell into radio by accident and, and now have this show. And I've done this for a year. I've made no money on it. And I would do it for the rest of my life without a, making a penny um, if my wife would. Love, at some point, I got to actually boost advertisers and earn a living off of this because uh, otherwise my wife's going to question my life. But I, I love it. I genuinely love doing this. I do five hours of radio a day, three hours in the morning and two hours in the evening. Uh, I actually earn my income from the two hours in the evening on WSB in Atlanta. But I, y'all, I love this. I love y'all. I, I love doing this program. I, I didn't never would have guessed if you had asked me what I would wind up doing with my life. Talk radio was not it. And here I am. And man, it is so much fun to come sit behind this microphone every day and, and spend three hours with you. And, you know, I don't get a lot of phone calls. And we finally decided to go out and figure out why are we not getting phone calls or people not listening. Turns out everybody's listening. Nobody just wants to call in. You just want to hear me. And I hope I'm not boring you to death with this story. But I just I'm.
y'all, I've been blessed. I, I really have. I, I get to sit in my office in my house for three hours in the morning and talk about the stuff that interests me and, and pray that it interests you and try to keep you informed with the news. And honestly, I, I gotta, let, let me just leave you with this. I, I didn't spend, uh, intend to spend this much time on this. There's a, a there's a disturbing trend in conservatism, and, and I consider myself a conservative, a, a Christian and a conservative more than I consider myself a Republican. I was an elected Republican at one point in my life. But there's a really disturbing trend among people in politics on the left and on the right, and particularly, I think, in the right right now, where people just want to have their prior convictions affirmed. You want to have your prior beliefs confirmed. The things that you already believe, you just want someone to parrot them back to you on radio. And you don't want to be challenged. Uh, you, you don't want to be told maybe to think about something differently, particularly from someone who is of your political persuasion. You just want everything that you already think to be told back to you by someone else to affirm that you're true and to affirm that it's true. And, and I've got a real problem with I know some of these people in radio right now who they're telling you what you want to hear, not what they believe. And ultimately, I think that trips them up. And you you will never have to, I, I give you this promise, I am never going to tell you what I think you want to hear for fear of losing you as a listener um, because I don't think that's fair to you and it's, it's, it's not something I want. I don't want to be a yes man to you. I want to tell you what I think. And if you disagree with me, I have a phone number and you can call in and we can discuss it. And we should, on as conservatives, be willing to sometimes disagree without me having to parrot stuff back to you. I just, I don't want to do that. I, I do not want to be the guy who makes my entire career being telling you what you want to hear. I'll tell you what I think, and you can call me in, and you can call in and, and challenge me on it, and that's fair game. But in the meantime, I, I also want to do my best to give you the straight news because I find one of the worst trends on the right right now is we've descended into QAnon conspiracy ter territory where everything is a conspiracy. When most things really aren't a conspiracy, most things people are just stupid. And it, I just I, I want to tell you what I what I like and I want to tell you um, what I think and I want to tell you what the news of the day is. And I want to be a straight shooter with you as possible on what the news is and my analysis of the news. And then I'll tell you what I think about the news, but at least try to give you the real facts because increasingly everyone is so interested in telling you a narrative and leaving out key facts uh, so that they can persuade you by lying to you. Essentially, I'd never want to do that. Uh, and, and if nothing else, I figure that segments this show away from so many other shows right now where people just want to tell you what you want to hear as opposed to what they actually think. Uh, I'll tell you what I think, and you may hate my guts for it, but that's what we're doing here. And man, we've been doing it for a year and we keep growing. So thank you. Speaking of Tim Bryant, uh, really just one of the best in the business. Uh, and he is on WGAU in Athens and uh, he interviewed David Ralston and well, y'all know my, my strong feelings on David Ralston, but Tim Bryan asked David Ralston, had him on and asked him about football. And, and I want to play this audio for you. Tim just sent it to me. Let, let's hear what he had to say. Thank you, Tim. It's great to be with you. Uh, and by the way, uh, your status as a Bulldog fan, uh, it did busterous, no doubt, by the fact that you went to law school at the University of Georgia, got your law uh, degree at UGA. My, my status as a Bulldog fan is beyond question. <laughs> Okay, and a college football fan. And when you hear that tech kid say, we want to play, if people don't want to play, that's their decision. But we as young student athletes want to play. Uh, what can we do? And by we, I mean me, I mean you, I mean Governor Kemp, I mean President Trump, and I mean Jerry Moorhead and, and, and 
and Greg McGarity. What can be done to make this safe or safer? Well, I think I, I, I think the steps that the SEC has taken uh, in terms of developing new protocols uh, are are wise. Uh, I think they're they emphasize safety. Uh, you know, they say if if a, if, if a student athlete wants to play. Uh, let them play. If they choose not to play, they have that right, and it would not affect their eligibility. Uh, each school then would dictate uh, or, or set guidelines about attendance, if any, uh, and, and social distancing requirements within the uh, stadium. Uh, the teams are developing testing procedures and schedules. and uh, I, I can't imagine what more could be done to make this the safest environment these young people could be in. And so at the end of the day, Tim, I think it's important that we listen to their voices. We listen to the players. uh, You know, you listen to Monty Rice. uh, You listen to uh, Trevor Lawrence. You listen to um, this this player for Georgia Tech. Uh, Listen to Justin Fields, for God's sakes. Uh, He's wanting to play at a Big Ten school. Uh, and, uh, you know, we listen to those, these young men have a lifetime tied up. Uh, this is, this is their, um, their, 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 their goal of the lifetime is to play college football. Uh, and if we, if they're not playing, are they going to be any safer? And that's the point that Trevor Lawrence and others are making, uh, Speaker Ralston. What are you going to do with us if we're not playing? They are arguing, these players, that we're safer in a football environment than would be out in, quote-unquote, the world at large. And I think think that's accurate. Uh, uh, I mean, you can get this virus um, um, uh, in a restaurant, in a bar, uh, at church, uh, uh, at a family get-together. I mean, I've heard, we've all heard all the stories about how uh, it, it has uh, been contracted. And um, uh, so, you know, there's no one has made the case they will be safer not to be playing football. Uh, and so I think we need to move forward. Uh, I think the commissioner's office and, and the SEC presidents uh, need to move forward. I think the ACC is ready to go with them. I think the Big 12 is probably ready to go with them. That's David Ralston. He was speaking to Tim Bryan on our affiliate WGAU in Athens uh, just a little while ago. And he's, you know, the speaker and I on occasion find strange common ground. Football is one of them. Um, Figuring out what went wrong with our election procedures uh, in in, uh, this past primary election is, is another one. I agree with him on this. Uh, completely agree with the Speaker of the House of Georgia on this. We await the Joe Biden vice presidential pick. I, I have a question. If the election really drags on, and, and by the way, um, I, I, I wanted to talk to an elections expert, and Steve Greenhut uh, is at um, the, um, oh, where, what group is he? R Street. Um in D.C. and Steve Green, he's an elections expert, uh, and I, I wanted to ask him, talk to him about ele- absentee ballots and the like. At the at the end of the show, we're going to connect, uh, and you can hear our conversation on ballot integrity and the like. I uh, actually really interested to talk to him about this issue, but um, I, I got a question: If the election does carry on 
for a couple of weeks after the election. And we ultimately, we determined that, in fact, the polling was right and Joe Biden wins. How surprised is Joe Biden going to be to find out he ran for president? I just, I, I it, it's, I mean, how surprised is he going to be when he finds out who his vice presidential pick is today? Vice president for what? <laughs> what do you mean I'm running for president? Get off my lawn. All right, all right, all right. You know, this this reminds me, hang on a second. I didn't get a chance to play this audio yesterday. I need to play this audio. Uh, this is Brian Stelter on, on CNN and his reliable sources. Oh, evil, awful, conservative talk radio. Let's go on a trip together to a totally alternative universe. You never hear what's happening there unless you tune into right-wing talk radio. But you need to know what they are saying because the most popular, most powerful talkers in the country have trained their sights on Joe Biden. What you are about to hear them say is mind-boggling. Look, look, whether you like Biden or not, this stuff is offensive and otherworldly. So let me set the stage for this before I play the clips. Keep in mind that news and talk radio is still really popular, even in the internet age. Guys like Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity can influence tens of millions of listeners. And as this HuffPost headline pointed out earlier this year, talk radio stars were shopping dangerous claims about the coronavirus. They were downplaying its severity. But nowadays, if you listen to those shows, you hardly hear about COVID at all. They have shifted to big time Biden bashing instead. You know what this is? This is negative partisanship in action. So what's negative partisanship? Well, these researchers from Emory University uh, define it as a pretty simple concept. They say in this article for Political Magazine that over the past few decades, American politics has become like a bitter sports rivalry in which the parties hang out, hang together, mainly out of sheer hatred of the other team, rather than a shared sense of purpose. The researchers showed that partisans, meaning strong supporters of a specific party, have grown to dislike the opposing party, quote, more than they like their own party. So when the president, for example, says that Biden is against God, that's negative partisanship. It is so hateful. Sorry, I, I just felt the need to, to overlay the sound of a baby crying for shelters. <laughs> Charlie, whose wife just had a baby, is like, what? 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 what, what where, why is the baby? Y'all, this is all. Oh, it's negative partisan. Y'all, this is okay. This is like the, the bashing of Foxy. It, 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 it is, it, it's remarkable to me. I mean, first of all, have you gone on MSNBC or Brian Stelter's on show where a guy accused the president of having killed more people than Hitler and CNN? Now, in fairness to Brian, it wasn't someone from a show. It was someone else at CNN decided to repackage that clip and push it out on social media where they accused the president of killing more people than Adolf Hitler. On MSNBC, they regularly uh, go into Trump derangement syndrome. And they're going to focus on here. Here's why they are upset with talk radio. Do you know the left has never been good at talk radio? They they have never been good at talk radio. They have tried. Remember Air America? Allegedly, still on now uh, on Sirius XM. Apparently, there are some left wing talk radio shows, and and in some parts of the country, they've got they got NPR, but it, it's not really uh, at at that level. Why is the left so bad at talk radio? It's very much like um, 
This is going to offend some of you. Have you ever noticed how terrible Christian movies are? Listen, I don't mean to be offensive. And in full disclosure, I know some of the donors who have committed to making Christian film and bringing it to the silver screen. And arguably it does well, but it does well in the same way that uh, pay for TV movies do well on the Lifetime channel uh, for women who have broken up with their their uh, husband. They've gotten a divorce and, and they hate all men. And so they watch Lifetime movies that just affirm that their their man hating views. Uh, you've got Christians. I mean, it's just that it's dreadful stuff, y'all. And I'm, I'm, listen, I, I really don't mean to be offensive, but I get invited to these movie screenings for Christian movies all the time. I'm like, this just isn't good. Listen, they're so stereotypical. They all have the black woman who knows Jesus, who prays. And there's the montage scene while she's praying of the people feeling the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There's, there's always the person who hates God and has the, 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 the uh, dark night of the soul moment where Jesus reveals himself and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit comes on him and he's a changed man. I personally believe if, if you were to do a movie and, and you really wanted to make it um, a, a faith-based, do a really, really, really good secular movie, but the entire undercurrent is is gospel filled like i always thought it would be neat to do a do a um movie about a detective who he's got um he's got 12 people in the police office in the police department who are working with him and there's corruption in the office and they're trying to root out the corruption in the office and ultimately one of his 12 detectives working for this police chief uh it actually collaborates in, in assassinating him. Now, you don't see him rise again from the dead, mind you, but but the, the entire thing is, is gospel-filled, the, the overturning of the order and the cleaning up the corruption and the quest for truth and the betrayal and all of that. Uh, it, it just just do, do movies like that that echo the themes of Scripture without being so in-your-face. I mean, because when you try to do some of these in-your-face stuff, it just it, it's just not that good, a lot of it. I mean, come on. I just, ah! And... Liberals on talk radio are the same way. It is so humorless and in your face. Y'all, I've tried to listen to left-wing talk radio. These people don't have a sense of humor. They, they're they just, they're angry all the time. And, and you know, to some degree, there are, there are some people in, in conservative talk radio who are like that, but even in their anger, they have, these these people, they can't find anything funny to laugh at. You're, the only people they're allowed to laugh at are white men. Because, you know, you can't have a joke now. If you're on the left, you, you can't have a sense of humor, really, because you're going to offend some group by having to say, you're just laughing at the minority group because you're racist, dang it. Uh, they just, they got no sense of humor. They, they can't laugh. Everything is dour and sour and doom and gloom and the president's a racist, neo-Nazi, and Joe Biden isn't progressive enough for them, and even they recognize he's losing his mind, and there's just nothing to be happy about. They can't stay in business. They're not entertaining. They, they don't, it's like they, these Christian movies, they're not entertaining. Sometimes you got to step back and say, hey, you know, your number one job is not to save the world. And in fact, if you're in entertainment, and by the way, if you do Christian movies, just let me give you some some free advice here. And I mean this genuinely and sincerely. 
and I have to remind myself of this sometimes. My job is to entertain you. The job of the person doing the Christian movie is to entertain. The job of the left-wing talk radio show host is to entertain. Not to save the world and not to save souls. Those can be a byproduct of keeping you informed and being somewhat humorous and being very relatable. And in in my case, I try to be as very transparent with you. Who I am on radio is, is who I am off radio. You'd be surprised at the number of people that's not true with. But you, you just you're supposed to you you're just supposed to have fun. And on the left, you can't have fun in talk radio. And, and so now you got, this gets me back to, to Brian Settler on, on CNN and this lament of talk radio. It's an alternative reality. No, we speak a different language than what people on the left tend to speak. And we have different jokes. Uh, well, we actually have jokes on the left. They don't even have jokes. They, they, they can't have humor because they're afraid of offending some group. And so it, it, and if you have no sense of humor, you're not going to find Rush or Sean or Mark Levin or me or, or anyone at Glenn Beck, Dana Lash, anybody on, on conservative. You're not going to find them funny at all because you got no sense of humor. You don't really, it's, a, it's just all so offensive. How can you listen to this? It's just, they're so mean to you. Meanwhile, you've got people on TV saying that the president killed more people than Hitler. <laughs> I just, listen, the obsession that CNN and MSNBC have for Fox News, it's almost like priapism, and it has lasted for more than four years. They probably need to go to the emergency room by now. Um, it, it's just Fox News is killing it in the ratings. I don't know if you guys have seen, but Fox News, I think last week, was the number one network on TV. I mean, not cable news. It was like the number one network on cable ahead of ESPN, ahead of ahead of the Hallmark Channel, ahead of ahead of everything. And they're beside them. How can people watch this? This is so offensive. You don't have a sense of humor. You know, I'm I'm always, I'm amazed by the number of people on the left who view everything on the right as it is offensive. Because, oh my gosh, they, they told a joke. At jo- they, they made an Alzheimer's joke about Joe Biden. <gasps> we can't joke about Alzheimer's. We can't joke about anything. We can't have this sense of humor. I mean, it, y'all, come on. Sometimes you got to laugh. And Joe Biden is the gift that keeps on giving this front. Joe Biden, I mean, Joe Biden, for Pete's sake, last week actually asked a reporter if he was on cocaine and was a junkie when the guy asked him if he had taken the memory test that the president had taken. You got to be able to laugh at that, but you're not allowed to laugh at that. You're not allowed to have humor in this stuff. I mean, that is the secret to the success of Fox. It is the secret to the success of conservative talk radio is it's actually humorous. It is actually engaging. It actually it engages on topics people talk about. And most importantly, here's the thing. It doesn't take itself too seriously. That's one of the problems that CNN has these days. It's a problem that MSNBC has. It's a problem that left-wing talk radio has. It's a problem that, frankly, Christians making a lot of movies in Hollywood have. They take themselves too seriously. I am a 45-year-old fat white dude, I can't take myself seriously. I can take the topics of the day seriously, but I mean, come on, seriously. I mean, I I, I love what I do and, and I have fun and I think it tries to, it, it translates over. Uh, but but I look at some of this stuff and w- whether it's the, the movies that go, y'all, again, 
I, I maybe if people are going to listen to this. They're going to see it. Philip's going to put this on YouTube or, or, or Instagram, and, and I'm not going to get these invitations more. But I get invitations to these movies to come share the gospel through this movie. I don't want to share the gospel through the movie. I want to be entertained by the movie. If the if the movie shares the gospel while entertaining me, that's fine. But I it's like we, we go to – do you remember the books? When you were a kid, my sister had these books. Um I, I might have had one of these books. I think I had a Star Wars one where they were flip books where you could flip the characters and so you could have like the you could you could have the the head of the of the the girl and then you could flip through and you could find the the, the top of the clothes and you could flip through and find the bottom and you could mix and match and and you could do this and then there was the guy and you could do it or there was the Star Wars character where you could have the Star Wars the the Stormtrooper helmet and then the Darth Vader middle and then the 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 Han Solo bottom or something you could do you know what I'm talking about. It's like the Christians who make the movies, they do this. They've got a little flip book. And oh, oh, this time this time we're going to have the, the white chef who has the cast iron skillet and fries the chicken and prays. And, and we're going to have the, the black family has the problem with the crisis of faith. But but it's all very, like, templated out. And, and it's, how does anybody get anything out of this? It's the same with talk. It's the same with CNN. It's the same with MSNBC. You listen to Rush Limbaugh. You know the general news of the day that he's going to talk about, but you never know what he's going to say, really. You listen to this program. I didn't even expect it. This isn't even on my list of things to talk about. It It just kind of popped into my head. That's part of the problem with the show, by the way. Stuff pops into my head. You people send me messages on Instagram, and suddenly off I go to the races on a topic I never intended to talk about. Uh, But it it keeps you you guessing. It keeps you entertained. It keeps you informed. And it gives people like Brian Seller something to complain about, that it's it's an alternative world. You know, it's not actually an alternative world. It's just different from what you're used to hearing or want to hear. And maybe you should branch out a little more and be exposed to a little more of it. There, there's there's nothing wrong with Rush Limbaugh's show. He's a fantastic, great, he's the best in the business. You could actually learn how to be entertaining just by listening to Rush. Even if you don't agree with him, if you just listen to Rush Limbaugh, you will be a more successful TV or radio show personality because he's the best in the business. Be your own person, but but understand what he's doing as opposed to just claiming that it's some alternative nasty reality where they're just out attacking, attacking Joe Biden. Have you not heard your own TV networks? Be a little more humorous. Be a little less serious. And you know what? Branch out a little. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of this wide-ranging, I mean, we've just totally gone off anything I wanted to talk about today. I will get because there are runoffs. Remember, there are runoffs. You need to go vote. We we may even, well, I may get to some theology here, so you're fairly warned. The phone number, if you want to call in, though, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I would like to go to the phones to Warner Robins, Georgia, home to the greatest pizza restaurant in the entire state of Georgia, in my opinion, my father's place, down on Moody Road in Warner Robins. We go there. Gosh, we finally went back after months of not being able to go because of the pandemic. We finally went the other day. But I digress. Let's go to Scott in Warner Robins. Welcome, Scott. Good morning. Morning. What's going on? Thanks for taking the call. Uh, just a comment. Um, if if you don't watch Fox or if you or, or cable TV, all I hear is Trump should have got involved. Trump didn't get involved. He then he should have got involved, but then he didn't get involved in this coronavirus. I consider the coronavirus um, probably forty fifty thousand deaths is because of the impeachment virus. The impeachment pandemic, I mean, impeachment pandemic. 
535 Congress people. They were all concerned with the impeachment, and they knew that there would be no impeachment of Donald Trump, but they, that's all they concentrated on. As this coronavirus was being, uh, starting to come out of China, but none of them acted, none, which caused a delay, which caused maybe an additional 30 or 40,000 people died. So I call it the impeachment pandemic. Scott, I, I got to tell you, uh, I made this point several months ago, and you would have thought that I had stood on the steps of the Capitol, murdered a child, stripped my clothes, and sang praises to Satan the way that the left reacted. Actually, no, they, they would probably celebrate if I did that. No, but you get my point there. They went absolutely nuts uh, on this point. And, and you're right. That Remember, remember when Donald Trump at the end of January, as, as they were headed into the Senate impeachment trial, he banned travel to China. And the first response of the Democrats was not that it was racist, but that the president was trying to distract from impeachment, that this was no big deal and he was overplaying the virus and he was trying to distract from it. Uh, and then they accused him of being racist uh, and hating the Chinese and trying to stir up international turmoil to distract from impeachment over it. You're absolutely right on this, and it doesn't get enough attention. And I got to tell you, I think given the reaction uh, from Democrats to me when I pointed this out, that, that it, it is on the money. For those of you still trying to process this, let, let me explain this. The virus was going on in January and February and spreading in this country. And what was everyone in Washington focused on? Trying to impeach the president of the United States when it was a foregone conclusion there wouldn't be the votes. And yet the Democrats continued. They never even tried to build a bipartisan case to impeach the president. They just tried to do it for show. They tried to do it for fundraising. They knew it wasn't going to work. Again, you have 22 outgoing Republicans in the House of Representatives, half of whom hate the president's guts and blame him for their own departure. And the Democrats never even tried to to work with them to build a case against the president, which they're not going to be accountable to his voters. They would have gladly done, but the Democrats didn't care. They just wanted a show trial of the president. They, they wanted to do this for their own base. They felt they had to, and in the process, they distracted him and them from the virus. And when the president took action to stop travel from China, their first attack on him was not that it was racist. It was that he was trying to distract people from impeachment. Uh, yes, the Democrats in their impeachment effort owe some accountability for distracting all of Washington, including the president president from dealing with the virus. The media will never point that out. And when I've pointed that out in the past, people have lost their minds over it. But it continues in my mind to be a very fair point that the Democrats own some of this by this whole impeachment trade that distracted everyone while the situation was building. That's going to drive people insane. But it's the truth. It is a hard truth that people are going to have a hard time accommodating. But frankly, I think it, it also is, is a segue for the president on the campaign trail to point out that uh, the Democrats were distracted by this too. They were distracted trying to do this stupid impeachment that everyone knew was never going to. And let's be honest here. Everyone knew it was never going to be successful. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show all across the state of Georgia and then some. The phone number, if you would like to call in and be a part of our program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You are more than welcome to to call me, but uh, don't suck. <laughs> you got to be a good caller. And what's a good caller? Someone who makes me look good as the host. <laughs> All right. 
the Democrats in Georgia, they want to recall Brian Kemp. Have you heard about this? Yes. They want to recall Brian Kemp. Uh, Jen Jordan, uh, one of the state senators uh, from the Buckhead area, said she's been researching it and turns out there's already a group and she's been pushing people towards that group. Now, why on earth? Well, they want to politicize the pandemic. They're not happy with Brian Kemp's handling it. They, they want mandatory masks imposed on everyone. Here's, here's an interesting thing. Uh, there is a lot of polling out there that actually shows that the voters in the state of Georgia really are okay with Kemp's handling of this. There, there's, I got to go on a larger, larger tirade here. I, you will notice those of you who, who, who tell me these things, you will notice I have avoided the virus all, all day. We, we've touched on it tangentially with football. Now I must go there for just a moment to make a point. If you are a regular listener, a regular viewer on Facebook or Instagram, what have you, you know I take the issue of masks very seriously. And you know I encourage you to wear masks. And you know I, I spend a great deal of time uh, rebutting the the ridiculous uh, pseudo-scientific articles out there that, that people peddle to tell you that the virus is no big deal, it's actually just the flu, and, and, and masks don't really work and all that. You should wear a mask. But in saying that, I also think that some of the ridiculous nanny statism on the left has gone too far. The demands that the government impose on you to stay in your house or not go to church or not wear a mask and, and all of that, um, I, I think have gone too far. The number of people on the left who want to shame you on social media for not wearing a mask you know, the study, the, the, the science actually says if if about 80% of people are in a mask, who cares about the other 20%? It, it's still going to work. You don't need 100% compliance. Uh, you, you need most people doing it. And I don't have a problem with private businesses telling you to enter. You got to wear a mask. In fact, I went to Barnes & Noble last night and there's a sign on the door. If you don't wear a mask, you can't come in. I'm totally fine with private business doing that. Uh, but I understand philosophically why Brian Kemp doesn't want to mandate it in the state. Uh, at some point, it's on you and individual responsibility. And 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 bear with me here. I, I got to make this point. Because this is, is really, really, really important. You should not be compelled under the pain of going to jail to put on a mask. I think you should, but I don't think the government should be forcing you. I think you should do it because it's the right thing to do. And here's the thing, in Georgia, there are multiple cities that have imposed mask mandates, including the city of Savannah. I believe the city of Athens, don't hold me to that one, but I think them, the city of Atlanta and others. They have not enforced it. They have not enforced it. They have not attempted to enforce it, though they're demanding the mandate, they haven't enforced it.
Y'all, if they're not going to enforce it, why make Brian Kemp be the nanny state dictator of the state of Georgia? There are things that you should do that government should not have to compel you to do. Like, for example, if I'm really honest, I don't think there should be seatbelt laws. I think you should wear your seatbelt. I think it's for your own good. It's for the good and safety of others. It is for the safety of those who may be in a collision with you uh, so that you, by virtue of being an idiot, don't drive up their costs if there's a wreck. Um, But you should do it because it's the right thing to do. But I don't necessarily think the government should be enforcing seatbelt laws. I think the police have, have bigger fish to fry than that. In the same way, I don't think that there should ever be a law to compel you to put your shopping cart uh, back in the little shopping cart holder. This is this this is just um, this is nanny statism, and it is a sign of a people who are ungovernable when people themselves won't do the right thing. Because if you're not going to do the right thing without government compelling you to do it then you're probably not going to do the right thing when government isn't watching. And Brian Kemp seems to understand that, and the Democrats don't. And here in Georgia, now the Democrats want to engage in a recall effort of Brian Kemp for not imposing a mandate on masks. And I want to be very freaking clear with you people. When Brian Kemp reopened the state, there was a bunch of histrionics and hysterical writing, including in the Atlantic, which said that this was an experiment in human sacrifice and everyone was going to die because of what Brian Kemp did. And do you know what? In fact, I'm going to pull up the chart right now and I'm going to put it on Facebook where everybody who's out there who's watching on Facebook will be able to see this. And we're going to see this, we're going to see this graph and we're going to look at not the data report. We're going to look at the date of onset, which is important. So the governor banned large gatherings on March 23rd. He imposed shelter in place uh, when? Uh, on April April 1st, April 2nd. He released it on March 1st. And you know what happened? Cases went down. When did cases begin to seriously uptick in the state? Not until June, we went a month in the state of Georgia with decline after Governor Kip opened. And remember, all of the hysterics told us that we were all going to die because Brian Kemp was opening the state and the cases actually stayed flat or went down. It was not until Memorial Day and then Black Lives Matter's protests and then pride marches in the street, despite cities telling them not to do it, that you saw cases skyrocket. It was not conservatives spreading the virus. It was progressive activists in the streets marching who spread the virus, and now they want to use their spread of the virus to try to impeach or recall Brian Kemp from office because they're the ones who behaved irresponsibly, and somehow it's Brian Kemp's fault that they were marching and rioting in the street and smashing windows and burning businesses, and it's his fault? It was the mayor of Atlanta who let him do it. It was the district attorney in Atlanta who rounded up the police who would have stopped them. Why don't you recall them instead of Brian Kemp? Because they're Democrats. And they would much prefer to blame Brian Kemp than blame Democrats. 
they would much prefer to say it's a Brian Kemp fault and a Brian Kemp problem than to recognize that it was individuals who didn't. The man has gone around the state of Georgia on multiple occasions with the Surgeon General of the United States and did a massive campaign to tell people to put on a mask. He has put on a mask when he's in public. He's told people to put on a mask. He's gone to every part of the state to tell people to put on masks. But he hasn't mandated it in law. And that's your problem. You know, you could have joined him on this. You could have made it a bipartisan effort. You could have had Stacey Abrams march around the state with the governor and tell people, you know what, you should you should put on masks. We disagree on whether it should be mandated, but we both agree you should wear them. But no, no, they, they didn't want to do bipartisan. No, they, they, they didn't want to do nonpartisan. They didn't want to make it a they, they didn't want to make it nonpartisan. They wanted to make it a partisan issue. They wanted to divide people. And now they want to recall the governor because they didn't get their way. They want to politicize the pandemic. They want to turn it into politics. They want to recall the governor of the state of Georgia because he had the audacity to tell people they should do the right thing without the force of government coming down upon them. And they want the force of government coming down upon them. They want bigger government. They want more government power. And they are horrified that the governor won't mandate a mask. They are horrified that the governor won't mandate statewide masks in schools. He wants schools to be able to determine for themselves what they should do. Horror, horror. You know, it, it, what's so bizarre here, if, if everyone will recall, in the beginning, the governor's position was that every region of the state is different. And therefore, because every region of the state is different, every region of the state should have a be able to have a different plan for the virus. And these Democrats bellyached and said, no, no, we need a statewide plan. We need a statewide plan. Everything's got to come through the governor. So guess what? He did it. And now suddenly they're, oh, no, I think you should allow individual governments to do this. No, no, you're the ones who wanted it to all run through the governor's office. You got what you asked for. And now as a result, you want to recall the governor because you're not getting your way. You people, not the governor, you people on the left who want to recall the governor, y'all are politicizing a global pandemic. It's not the governor doing it. He's listening to actually the experts who are telling him what to do. And guess what? He said on this year program, if they told him that a mask mandate was necessary, he would impose it. But they have told him thus far, there's no reason to impose a mask mandate when get this, pay attention to this big news here. Those local governments who want the mask mandate aren't even enforcing the stuff they're already supposed to enforce, including social distancing. They're not doing that. So why should he add other mandates that they wouldn't enforce either? This is all a show. This is all politics in a pandemic. It's the best the Democrats have. And it's why probably they're not actually going to be very successful in Georgia. I've gotten some questions uh, about the District 10 State House runoff in Georgia. Uh, Victor Anderson, Robert Crumley. Uh, I, I, I don't really know either guy, but everyone that I know and trust uh, says Robert Crumley, um, and that that Crumley is the is the one to support. Um, in the other one, that's up in in the Habersham County area as well. Uh, Stacy Hall, I I know up there is on the ballot uh, for State House District Fifty, I believe it is. Um, uh, so Crumley and Hall, uh, Matt Gertler up in the north northeast part of the state. All those runoffs are today. Speaking of runoffs, let's go to Jim calling in Decatur. Jim, welcome. 
Oh, thank you. Well, I've got three races on the nonpartisan ballot here in DeKalb County, and I've tried to read up as best I can on each person. And my computer just went blank there. Uh, Superior Court Judge of Stone Mountain, do you know anything about Yolanda C. Parker Smith or Mindy Pillow? Uh, no, I, I, I don't. Uh, <laughs> um, those, those are impossible because they're always suspiciously non-argumentative. Lawyers well, are paid because to argue. they're running for judge, they got to be really careful with the with the yeah. judicial races there. Yeah. Okay. Well, Board of Education District Three has Willie Mosley Jr. and Deirdre Pierce. Uh, the only thing I found about the two is. One difference is Willie Mosley likes parental participation, uh, first and foremost, which I like. Deirdre Pierce likes standard-based education, which I also like, just in general. Uh, okay. But that's I, about you know, the I, one difference. Listen, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grasp a little bit here, but I seem to recall one of the parents' education rights groups actually supporting Mosley – uh, because he's a big fan of school choice and parental involvement. Um, Ooh, don't hold me to that, good. but it seems like there was a, par- a parental education rights group that I like uh, that, that in between them actually weighed in on Mosley. Well, I was leaning slightly toward Mosley because of parents. can't have anything if you don't have that. And I say right. that as a former tutor and teacher. Uh, Sheriff, uh, R- Melody Maddox versus Ruth Stringer. No idea. Uh, honestly, I, I would go with Maddox, the, the incumbent. Uh, she's not great, um, but she's actually not a she's not a bad sheriff over there. Whew, that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. Slight improvement when you say over Jeffrey Mann. Yuck. Yeah. The guy who exposed himself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks a million. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to help there. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I, you know, again, one, one day when I have a budget for the show, I'm, I'm going to have somebody on staff to keep up with all this stuff for me. I got to rely on other people for some of, but, but a couple of those I knew the judge ones, they're always a little bit nebulous. Now let, let's go to Eddie in Athens. You're going to be next. Welcome to the program. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Hey, I was just reading your, I was reading your, uh, your, uh, article in resurgent about a hill to die on talking about God creating male and female. And that that not giving ground to that, but also in that you had the word Allah Tav, which is et. But that's also if you go to the Book of Revelations, I found this out was interesting. It says he's the Alpha and Omega, where the Allah Tav is the beginning of the Hebrew and the end of the Hebrew alphabet. Yes, and, uh, and there's a, now, and you got to remember that that John wrote in Greek; he didn't write in Hebrew. That's right. And, yeah, there, there's some some relation there. But it, now, for those of you who don't know what Eddie's getting at, um, I actually find this, this is the theology, Eddie, that I was I was headed towards and wasn't sure I was going to get to, particularly with the guest coming up. But because you called in on this, I, I'll explain this. Um, in English, you don't get the, uh, you don't get the, the poetry of Genesis. There's actually a lot of poetry in the style of writing. Um, so if you actually were to read Genesis one, one in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That's 10 words in English. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you actually read it in Hebrew, it's seven words. 
the opening sentence of Hebrew of, of Genesis is seven words. And those seven words, I, I don't believe it's a coincidence that the entire opening chapter of Genesis leads into the seven days of creation and the Sabbath rest. And the very first sentence is seven words. And what's so interesting is that middle word uh, that Eddie was talking about. And, and there's no English equivalent to that word. So it doesn't get translated. And essentially that middle word, uh, you, you can say it's et, E-T. And it directs the object of the verb. So the verb is creates, and, and the actual verb choice is bara. Uh, and that word bara is a verb for create that only applies to God. Whenever you see that word in the Bible, it never applies to mankind creating stuff. It only applies to divine creation. And so that word et, that is the center word in those seven words, that seven word open, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that is seven words in Hebrews, and that center word is et, and et means nothing in English, but directs your attention to the object of the verb. That is, what did God create? Well, this central word et is, is emphasizing that God created everything, everything. And he did so, that word bara, that, that verb choice that is used in the Hebrew, he did so in a way that we cannot create. When you go to the Tower of Babel story, and it talks about mankind building the tower, it doesn't use the word bra. It uses a different verb for create or build. When it talks about God building or God creating, Hebrew always uses the word bra to distinguish between divine creation and mankind creation. So what those first seven words mean, they allude to the Sabbath rest in the seven words of God created the heavens and the earth, alluding through the use of seven words to the uh, to the Sabbath, uses et as the center word of the seven, seven words. The central word is et, uh, emphasizing that the focus of this is on God's creation, the heavens and the earth. He created all things, and it's written in such a way to show that God created in a way we cannot, and what did he create? He created male and female. He made mankind and created them male and female. Now, the purpose of this piece this morning was to show that as we engage, sadly, in a culture war in this country that is deeply divisive, one of the central tenets that is growing and, and becoming increasingly hostile to people of faith is the transgender movement, where people believe, contrary to science and theology, that we can create ourselves male and female ourselves. Well, actually, Scripture says only God can create us male and female. And that was the point of this this morning is you've got to be able to stand up for this if you're a person of faith, even if you don't want to because the entire world around you screams and cries and belly aches and moans and condemns you for being a hater. You know, the things of the world are going to hate the things of God anyway. You can't give up those things to be liked by the world because you're compromising the integrity of your faith belief. So that was my, my opening that, that Eddie was, was calling it. And to get there, I had to delve into the Hebrew to explain it to people this morning. One of my laments uh, these days in the conservative movement and in the, the sphere of center-right organizations is how many organizations uh, to get a seat at the table with the Trump administration have either compromised their beliefs or gone silent when it comes to free markets and limited government. Uh, one of the organizations that, that's not willing to compromise on the issue of free market solutions for things is called R Street in Washington, D.C., a uh, big fan of, of the organization because of their unwillingness 
to compromise on free markets, improving things for people around the world. Uh, and, and they, they really genuinely do. And, uh, and, and our street stands up for free markets. And one of the people who works there is Stephen Greenhunt, who is their resident senior fellow, and he's their Western regional director. He also knows a thing or two about absentee balloting. And with that so much in the news these days, I uh, wanted to, to talk to Stephen about this very issue. But uh, all right, man, before I get there with you, though, first, thanks for joining me. And second, really 30 goats, five cats, six chickens, and two dogs live with you in California with you and your wife? Yeah, we've we've got a little uh, a tiny ranch, but uh, we like animals, so uh, we have too many of them. All right, so I, I guess with that many goats, you never have to actually cut the grass. Uh, unfortunately, they're rather spoiled, so uh, they're 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 pretty addicted to alfalfa. So unfortunately, that's not true. <laughs> I, I, I had to ask. I just I, I had to ask. Now that you're not here to talk farming with me, although I I was just totally intrigued by that line in your bio. I want to talk to you about absentee balloting because I, I was I was a lawyer who did specialized in elections law in Georgia for a number of years, and I'm always shocked by the number of people who don't understand the issue. Uh, about absentee ballots and, and how they process, but also that elections are within the purview of the state. So you've actually got 50 election codes, not a not really one size fits all elections. And I just wanted to let you riff on this issue and, and, and talk about it, particularly as so many conservatives these days are hesitant to do what they've done in every other election, which is request an absentee ballot. Yeah, I, we, we, I mean, you you know more about it than me. I saw that you have, have dealt uh, significantly uh, in Georgia and I've been writing about it and, and looking at these these reforms, and it really hasn't been particularly controversial, the whole idea of, you know, absentee validating or vote by mail. I mean, we, we can make some distinctions. I saw that you you made one distinction on Twitter that that's a legit one between whether you request the ballot or whether you're automatically sent it. But our argument has been, look, during this pandemic, we don't want people, uh, apparently don't want people going out and, and uh, waiting in lines. It seems to make sense to expand absentee uh, voting uh, in one form or another. And I'm a, I'm a big believer in letting the states deal with things as, as they want. And the locals, I live in Sacramento County, and we get mailed a ballot automatically. I personally like it. Uh, we get the ballot. I get to, especially here in California, we have all the various initiatives and you read them and you decide and you take it in. Uh, so I don't think it should be so controversial. Now there are problems with all election systems, but the idea of making it easier, at least having no excuse absentee balloting seems to make a lot of sense during the pandemic. Now, president Trump has turned it into a controversial issue. And uh, he, one of the points he's made is that, uh, you know, no Republican will ever win again, which is it's nonsense. I mean, uh, I've looked at a couple studies that I, I seem seem legit from one from Stanford that suggests there's really no partisan uh, impact on vote by mail per se. Uh, you do get a, a somewhat uh, increase in, in, you know, voting numbers, which that's not a bad thing to get if, in, in a voting reform. So, uh, you know, I, I think we ought to look at these things, uh, you know, if there are problems, look at specific problems. But I don't think vote by mail is not a problem. It's, it's a generally a good idea. And uh, let, one let me of the ask you that, one question yeah. on this. Uh, um, yeah, it, it seems like one of my concerns is you you live in California, and one of the issues is like, for example, in Georgia, uh, your ballot has to be at the Board of Elections by Election Day, and if I understand right, in California, it's got to be postmarked by Election Day, which could d delay the mail to some degree, and so delay the vote counting. 
Yeah, I mean, that's an annoyance, right? I don't, I don't think it's a fundamental problem. I, I sure like to get the election results on, on Election Day. Uh, that, that I don't think is a fundamental problem with it. Uh, I do think there's a problem with ballot harvesting, which is a, a separate yeah. measure, which we do in California. Uh, Jerry Brown had signed a law, I think it was in 2016, that allows ballot harvesting. Um, I, you know, I don't like that. I don't like the idea that somebody else can, you know, gather your ballots. But but vote absentee voting, voting, you know, requesting even if you, you have to request it uh, without an excuse where I think like 34 states do no excuse absentee balloting, which makes yeah, a lot George of sense. So, them. yeah. So, I mean, what, why should I have to have an excuse for why I want to get a ballot? to my house. Well, let, me, we, let me go to yeah. ballot harvesting for a minute. If you can just explain, because I talk about it on, on the show, but, but you know, it, it's kind of like when your parents tell you not to do something, people will believe it when your parents' friends tell you not to do it. I talk about it, but let, let me let you explain what ballot harvesting is. Yeah, it allows other people aside from your spouse. I mean, I don't think there's any, I don't think anyone complains if, you know, my wife takes my ballot in and drops it at the station, but allow, you know, unions or other groups, uh, you we could could collect your ballots and take it in and drop it in, drop it off at the official station. And I, I, I think that's a problematic thing, but that's a separate issue. Um, well, one of the things, too, that I, I think is lost in the debate, it, you know, the, some of the critics of it will point to uh, examples of, of voter fraud. And, and you know, I, any kind of voter fraud is, uh, undermines democracy and the faith in our system. But the level of voter fraud with absentee balloting is less than it is with regular voting. And there's another problem with to cast a, a vote. That's a problem. People. So you know, there are problems on, on any system that's run by the government is not is going to have some problems. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I think you get fewer problems with vote by mail and it just make you know, it just makes it convenient. It goes back to the civil war. We was, I guess the original absentee balloting. And uh, I just don't understand why it's such a controversial idea. <laughs> oh, because everything's got to be controversial these days, it seems. Now, l- let me ask you, you, just, you were king for a day, and, and you got to, to m- rule on this issue. How would you implement uh, an absentee or vote-by-mail um, process for the country? What, what would you say was out of bounds, and what would you say would be in bounds? Yeah, well— Fortunately, as a free market guy, I, I don't want to be king for the day. <laughs> I would consult experts such as yourself who've, who've actually uh, dealt with the cases in, in, in specific states. But I, I would allow, allow – uh, well, I'd allow the locals to, to decide how they want to do it, the states and the locals, whether they want to – like Oregon automatically sends the ballot. So if some states mm-hmm. want to do that, and they've had very few problems, that's fine. But I would outlaw ballot harvesting, and I would uh, – you know, I would um, – outlaw any sort of online voting where there's no, you know, there, there's no way to trace the ballot. That That's a very dangerous idea. Right. Um, but, but I would allow a, a really broad vote by mail system, but I also in exchange for, you know, limiting ballot harvesting. And I say limiting simply because I, I don't see any problem with having, you know, your spouse take your ballot in, but having outsiders take the ballot. But, but otherwise I, I would have this, an expansive system it makes it easier to vote. It's also good for, uh, you know, it's good for elderly people. You shouldn't need an excuse. Um, you know, so so I, that, that's the direction I would well, go. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I, I will, I, I'll, I'll give you my opinion here on, on this one. I actually, I, I'm, 
I'm I'm not as as skeptical or hostile to to mail in balloting, but I, and I realize this is naive and and we'll never get here. But I actually am one of those people who believes that we should actually stop all mail in and absentee balloting unless you're elderly or infirm and make everybody show up on election day and and exercise their their right together on election day. Make it a national holiday if we must to get everybody there. But I just think there's there's something about election day that. Uh, mail-in balloting kind of gets us away from that one special day of the year where we go throw the bums out and, and instead we spread it out over a month and a half. And then honestly, I, I have to admit selfishly, having been a former campaign guy, I also really hate the whole process because it really screws up your timeline for campaigning. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. Well, it does, it does have its ups and downs in terms of just from a, uh, you know, a, a campaigning situation, right? Because you're, you're less vulnerable in a spread out a election to one big event, right? That upsets right. people and changes. So that that's, you know, I, that's not my concern. My concern is making it easier to vote. I personally uh, don't like uh, going into the, into and waiting in line and casting the ballot. I, I rather, I like it doing it at home. That's just a, a personal preference. I try not to let preferences decide, but uh, you know, in my, and in, in my research, it doesn't, give an advantage to one party or the other. I am afraid yeah. that Republicans in buying into this whole concern are, are it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And all of a sudden we see president Trump telling people to vote by mail in Florida after he's telling them not to vote by mail. Yeah. I, I'm glad I think you said that one because party. that actually, yeah, that, that wouldn't, I mean, there's a lot of data out there that uh, Republicans do tend to uh, listen to what the president says. And so they're, they're being outmaneuvered by Democrats on mail-in and absentee balloting this year. And normally in the past, Republicans have led in absentee ballots. And this year, even in Georgia here, the Democrats are leading in absentee balloting right now because of the Republicans embracing the president's skepticism of it. And the, it, it is almost a self-defeating prophecy for the GOP. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's problematic, and I just wish that you know, as you you started out, very nice, very nice things you said about my employer, and I, I appreciate that. But trying to look at every issue, regardless of whatever the partisan uh, spin is on it, right? Just try to say, is this a good idea? And I think it's a good idea, especially during a pandemic. And, you know, so that's that's uh, where we are. Yeah, I, 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 I do have to agree that g- given a pandemic, uh, having a bunch of people standing in line, making it in some of these polling places, I like my polling place, it's almost impossible to socially distance uh, inside the polling place. So, well, look, I appreciate you uh, taking time away for, from the farm to, to come on and talk about this. I really do. Thank you very much for doing it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Stephen Greenhut from R Street. Uh, and again, R Street, uh, they focus on free markets. Uh, they're, they're not Republican. They're not Democrat. They're definitely right of center because of their support for free markets. Uh, and it was just worth getting Stephen on to talk about this because the y'all do need to understand this, uh, that uh, the Republicans are running nationwide now. They normally have an absentee balloting advantage. And they're actually behind pretty significantly in most states right now because a lot of the voters have heard the president's message about early and absentee voting, and they've decided they're going to show up on Election Day. The problem with showing up on Election Day is you don't know on Election Day, is it going to rain? Is there going to be a storm? Uh, Is it going to be snowing, uh, depending on where you are in the country? And is the virus going to be running amok? And that may dissuade you later. Uh, And so normally the Republican advantage on absentee balloting is, poof, it's gone. Now, that being said, there's a runoff today in Georgia. 
if you're in Northeast Georgia, you've got the, the Gertler-Clyde race. If you're in Northwest Georgia, you've got the Cowan Green race. Uh, my buddy uh, Jason Anavatarte is running in Harrelson and Paulding County for the state Senate. And then Stacy Hall up in Habersham County running for the state Senate. Uh, and um, there are a number of other races out there where people are doing their best to be engaged. Uh, you got what, what is, uh, the Crumley race up there as well in Habersham County, uh, Anderson Crumley race. Y'all go out and vote today if you haven't done absentee balloting. Go go vote today. Exercise your constitutional right if you can. I, I want to spend just a moment here on the Anavatarte race, and I realize that I'm only talking really to a small segment of the listeners, but I, y'all statewide need to understand what's going on here. So Jason Anavatarte is a friend of mine. His family is of Puerto Rican descent, and he supports RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And so his opponent is named Boyd Austin. I don't know that Boyd Austin actually supports RIFRA. And Boyd Austin's uh, supporters have been making very racist attacks against Jason. Uh, some of them have said he doesn't even live here. They've called him ethnic slurs because his family's Puerto Rican. By the way, his, his dad is a, a Purple Heart uh, recipient, a veteran of the U.S. military. And overnight, they started sending out text messages, Jason's opponents did, that he's being supported by a bunch of atheists in Atlanta and, and that God-fearing Christians need to go to the polls and oppose him. What really burns me up about this is that I know Jason, I know that he's a Christian, but not only that, all of the Christian pro-life groups in the state are supporting him. That's right. All of the Christian groups are supporting Jason Anavatarte. And his opponent is calling him a godless secular atheist who's being backed by atheists in Atlanta and won't stand up for religious liberty. When Jason actually is has made that a campaign issue. And I'm it, it bothers me greatly to see a friend of mine being lied about from a faith perspective and also someone saying, I, I, I'm a good Christian and this guy's not. Don't don't lie about your opponent's faith because then that makes you question it. Uh, it's gotten really, really nasty out there. Uh, and and I'm, I'm sticking with my friends here. Uh, so in, in Habersham, uh, you've got um, uh, you've got um, Stacy Hall. And Robert Crumley, you, you, I, Matt Gertler, listen, I no, I have not allowed a single person to come on and say anything bad about Andrew Clyde. I, he's, he seems to be a perfectly good guy. I just know Matt, and I'm supporting Matt, and I know his record. Uh, you know my feelings on on the Green um, Cowan race. And then there's Jason Anavatarte uh, down in Paulding. We, we've got races. If you're in middle Georgia where I am, I know there's a Bibb County mayoral race. Um, and man, that one has, has gotten dirty. I hear there's a big turnout in North Macon for Lester Miller. Um, we'll see how it shakes out. Um, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm not enthusiastic about my local runoffs here in, in middle Georgia, but statewide they're runoffs. People died to give you your right to vote. Uh, you should exercise that right. If you did not do an absentee ballot, you can show up at the polls today, but you're going to have to, I believe, wear a mask. And they'll try to make you socially distance. Uh, so please be safe when you go vote and don't spread a virus if you go out there to engage in our democratic right. It is Eric, uh, Eric Erickson. It is my show. Uh, this is, I guess, my time to shine. <laughs> uh, I got to work on these transitions coming back in. I, I, I've got to say that the president of the United States uh, appears to have taken my advice, uh, the, tweaking it a little bit. You know, one of the places I said go, uh, if not Yorktown or uh, Old North Bridge was Gettysburg and the White House, the president himself is saying that he may very well deliver his speech at Gettysburg. 
And you will be unsurprised to learn members of the media have rushed out to claim that he's going to a Confederate battlefield to give a speech in solidarity with Confederates because the president is a Confederate sympathizer. Now, I know. I I know. I, I know that it was actually a union win. I, I know it was. But the media, it's charged, you know, it's just the Confederates, the Confederates just get each part. It, it, it's amazing how broken people are because of the president. He apparently only white supremacists speak at Gettysburg, which, which I guess Abraham Lincoln was a vice president. You know, this is the, the perfect time. The party of Lincoln, that is the Republican Party, Lincoln is famous for not just being the president during the Civil War, but his Gettysburg Address, a, a very short speech. Uh, and the president himself, honestly, if, if the president was to give a speech at Gettysburg, I think he should do something very similar, make it make a very short speech. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of the, that field as a final resting place for those here who gave their lives that this nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from those, those honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave the last full measure of devotion that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from the earth. That was the entirety of the Gettysburg Address. A remarkably concise speech. 272 words. The trap for the president in going to Gettysburg... One, his speech, I guarantee you, they will move away from Confederate symbolism. That They're going to move away from that uh, because that's stupid, and I think some of them realize it's stupid. Where they will go is, well, there's no Gettysburg Address. Lincoln said more in 272 words than his 2,000 words. Man, this guy's an idiot. I mean, you're, 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 you're asking for the comparison to Lincoln if you go to Gettysburg. I think it's a good idea. Don't get me wrong. I think it is a good idea for the president to not do his address in Washington. I personally think he should tie it to the revolution, not the Civil War. I kind of understand why he would want to go in that direction. And Gettysburg is one of the places I said, you know, go to Gettysburg. But if you do, you're going to be compared to Lincoln. And he may invite the comparison, but you know how it will play with the media. The question, though, is how does it play with the American people? And I think the president could go to Gettysburg and he could deliver an address 
and say we are now at a time where those on the political left would divide us. They would divide us parent from child. They would divide us church from community. They would divide us Republican from Democrat. They would divide us white from black. They would tell us that race matters above all and that our identity, not our Americanness, is what's important. And I stand against all of that, and I stand for uniting the country. There, there are ways the president could do this. There are good ways the president can do it. And it doesn't matter what the media thinks, what do the American people who watch it think, because all the, all the television networks are going to air it. Everyone's going to see it, and so he'll be able to bypass the media spin on it going straight to the American public. There's a way for him to do it, but he should go to Gettysburg, not the White House lawn. How much is $20 million? How about $10 million or even $1 million? If you're like me, that's F-U-N money, as in fun money. It's take 10 trips around the world in a private jet money. It's tell your boss he has bad breath money or home theater that's better than the real theater money. Ohio Lottery jackpot games like Mega Millions, Powerball, and Classic Lotto all give you a chance at real fun money. So play an Ohio Lottery jackpot game today. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Please play responsibly. Now that's a parking spot. Introducing the I may have underestimated the size of my car policy with accident forgiveness from American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote. Find an agent. Visit AmFam.com. Optional policy features not included in base policies. Review policy for coverages and exclusions. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.